This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And welcome to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR 102.7. This is your weekly dose of film criticism. You're listening to Josh Nelson and I'm joined in the cave this week by... Alex Helenicholas. And Cerise Howard. And Thomas Caldwell is not with us again. He's uh, he's around town showing off his MIF shorts at the moment. So if you see Thomas in the cities, tell him to put some pants on and congratulate <laughs> him on his shorts. Thomas has curated in the Caldwellian tradition a number of incredible shorts programs as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival, which we may get to in a bit. Tonight's show is going to be about the Melbourne International Film Festival. As you may have gleaned, it's going to be a bit of a free-floating affair tonight. We're going to be um, covering a fair bit of films. We'll try and give you a heads up on films that are playing in the coming week or two and give you some dates, and we'll have a list of all the films we cover on our, um, our Facebook page and possibly the social medias as well. But let's kick things off where the film festival kicked off. That is Thursday night, opening night, at Paul Cox's Force of Destiny. Now, Cerise, you and I were in attendance. That we were, Josh. Um, I'm not, uh, from, from memory, convinced that either of us were over-enamoured of the film, uh, it's, uh, which is a, a tough thing to have to come to terms with knowing how uh, important a film it was for its maker. Uh, there was actually quite a moving speech from Paul Cox prior to the screening, uh, which was... Uh, well, we know he's not been well. We know that um, he has himself received a liver transplant in recent times, mirroring the chief narrative uh, development in the film. He, he managed to turn it around with a, a nice gag at the end, especially one seeking a million dollars for another production. I've got to admire a bit of chutzpah, uh, and I do. However, the film I found very problematic, um, and it occurred to me that I, I don't really think I've actually ever seen one of his films in the cinema before, and in a way you could say Hamer Hall's not exactly a cinema environment either, but it, it certainly didn't do any favours to the sound design of this film, which was one of two key problems I had with it. Actually, three key problems. I didn't like the sound, I didn't like the lighting, and I didn't like the dialogue. Uh, I did like some flashback fantasy sequences which were so at odds with the rest of the film that they were uh, jarringly interesting. But I, I really struggled with this film. Uh, I, I, I didn't enjoy it. I drifted in and out. Part of it was jet lag, but part of it was just that I was not enraptured in the least by uh, what seemed to me a really clunky film with pretty poor production values. Yeah, I had some similar issues to you with this film and my disclaimer is I'd spent the week previous um, preparing for a lecture on a passage to India and here the film revolves around a, the relationship between David Wenham who's waiting for that transplant and falls for and is reciprocated by a young Indian woman and the, the colonial politics as well as the gender politics in this film seem to leave me a little uncomfortable and maybe that was filtered through the, the glean of David Lean and, and uh, Forster but yeah I, I felt like this film actually could have been titled a, a transplant to India in terms of the way in which it dealt with those the cultural and, and gender politics but you know he certainly ha- is a bit of an icon and you know I guess beyond the film itself it was nice to see him get some kind of celebration and acknowledgement in the context of the festival. I was aware that the film worked for other people it just uh, really completely fell flat on me 
And I, I, I agree with where you're coming from there. There was some uh, slightly retrograde politics around uh, gender and colonialist attitudes. It was, yeah, it, it left me a little underwhelmed. I'm not sure there's a, an appropriate segue from uh, Paul Cox and Force of Destiny to the program or the, or the focus we're going to shift our attention to now, Alex. From underwhelmed to completely overwhelmed, perhaps. Nice. Uh, is, is that good enough? We're going to talk about the psychedelic program. The, um, it's quite remarkable. I think if you told me that, that this was going to be a thing that would happen, I would think, oh, psychedelic, that's an interesting idea. But it wouldn't fill me with excitement until I looked at the program and I thought, I love all, all of these films that I know I love. So I'm really excited about this program. I think there's real treasure. I think that there is such a thing as myth treasure, and I believe that the psychedelic program is where that treasure be buried. Me heart is why I've, gone, why I've gone in a pirating motif here. I have no idea because it's completely disconnected from the first film I think that we're all going to talk about, which is I'm very bad at names. Cerise, director's name? Uh, Viera Hedjelova. Yes, her film Daisies from... Yes, yes <laughs> exactly. Yes, very good. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Her 1966 film Daisies um, has played once and it's playing again on the 8th. It is a remarkable film. It is, it is myth treasure. Um, it's visually unparalleled, I think is fair to say. Maybe a little raw, perhaps even clunky at points, but there's something about this film stylistically. For a film that comes from 1966... There's something about it that actually reminds me a lot of 90s feminist zine culture. There's a real kind of collage, cut-up aesthetic that totally suits its story about two bored young women deciding that the only thing to do in a world gone bad is to go bad themselves. And they consciously decide to do this. I think it's a proto-punk film, certainly in terms of its punk feminist, not just aesthetic, but its its kind of ethos or its ideology. Um, it reminds me, it sounds like a weird point of reference, but it reminds me a bit at times of base moi, without the rape and without the revenge, in that the directors of that film, many years later, they just wanted to sh- have a film where women just, they can be bored and they can be silly and they can be hungry and they can be angry and they can be kind and they can be mean. Without a narrative, they can just be, they can just be. Women are allowed to just be. And I think that that's at the heart of, of Daisy's. Um, I think it's wonderful. I think it's an incredible looking film that you can't, it's almost... It's almost clumsy in a way to talk about these kind of more thematic ideas, I think, because it's visually so overwhelming. Tell me, Gut, tell me what you think. Over to you. Look, I've long adored this film. I haven't yet seen it at MIF, but I understand it's on a lovely 35mm print from the National Film Archive in Prague, which excites me no end. Uh, so I won't miss an opportunity to see it next Saturday. It's, uh, yeah, it's an extraordinarily rich film. Uh, you talk about the cut-up culture. I mean, literally, the, the screen, uh, the, the frame, everything within the frame gets cut up at one point. Uh, a pair of scissors is is wielded um, with very uh, very <laughs> destructive but constructive effects. The whole frame is reorganised into little pieces, and uh, it, it is quite something to behold. Also, these amazing scenes out of a train um, and uh, the colour separating into its component um, RGB parts. Uh, this this beautiful effect that cinematographer Yaroslav Kuchera had. Uh, toyed with before and would again again with uh, Viera Hitchilova in a later film Fruit of Paradise which is possibly even more psychedelic and which screened at MIF a few years ago too but uh, look I, there, there are thematic uh, issues you can pull out of this the communists were so horrified by this film they promptly had it banned for well they would have had it banned for eternity if they could have um, lasted that long themselves but them's the breaks guys 20 years you had your time <laughs> um, 
But, yeah, they especially took... Uh, well, uh, putatively, they, what they took issue with was an extraordinary banquet scene at the end where the, the waste in that sequence they just thought was uh, unspeakably appalling. But basically they found the entire film abhorrent and so far removed from the tenets of socialist realism as to have just <laughs> blown their minds. But hey, what else should a film in a psychedelia section do at a film festival? Josh? Hashtag destroy the joint. Yeah, yeah I think this the is the... original joint destroyer. is it, yeah. This, if, this poster, if this film had come out now, it would just have hashtag destroy the joint. And that sequence you just mentioned, Cerise, where they do literally destroy this entire banquet and feast and the joy with which they... Uh, approach these these acts of destruction is really engrossing actually and they're two wonderful performers that, that play the, the roles of the two sisters and the way they manipulate these sort of lecherous old men particularly um, maneuvering them inside and outside of trains is almost surrealist i mean it had this data-esque quality at times within this film yeah this is an enjoyable enjoyable entry and i'm yeah i'm glad i saw it there's so many moments in this film that remind me of being young even though it comes from such a different sort of cultural context than than my own youth but there's a scene in it where I think they're at quite a fancy nightclub or a bar and they just get drunk and cause a scene. They sneak in their own booze and they have this little charade where they, they can trick the waiter into thinking that he brought it to them and then they just get drunk and they behave badly it's like... I've been drunk, I've behaved badly, I, I connect with this film. Just these simple little moments are just so perfectly executed and so contemporary in a way um, that they're imagined. I think it's a timeless film and surely a huge influence on Jacques Rivette's uh, Celine and Julie oh, go absolutely. boating. Uh, but any film full of madcap antics dating back to the, the surrealists and Dardarists' early films and to more recent fare of a slapsticky nature. I mean, I think... Um, well, you, you've seen Head in, at yes. the festival already too. I mean, I, I think two of um, Richard Lester's films with the Beatles, just all of those madcap antics uh, and often with formal play as well where the, the camera might be sped up a bit, uh, cranked fast or slow or, or simulated to have been cranked because I think cranking's a little bygone. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's just so, such a joyous film. But Head, Alex... I was recommended this film years and years ago by a friend who said, you have to see this, it's an amazing film. And I said, yes, but it's the monkeys. <laughs> and I was wrong, and I'd like to apologise to both my friend and the monkeys because this is an amazing film. Um, it's, it is chaos, I think, is the fairest. Is there a plot? Oh, scarcely. Is there a plot? Um, it's, I mean, I guess it's partially in, in a similar kind of yellow submarine vibe in that there, there's a band and, and hijinks and hilarity ensue, but it is that formal play. I mean, that, that is the heart of this of, of, of Head. It's just a remarkable, not dirty, but cheeky. I think it's a cheeky film, but certainly playful would be the word that I keep coming back to with that. Have you guys seen it? No, I've read uh, about it way back when, when I read a biography of Jack Nicholson and was startled to learn that before he made it as an actor, he scripted the film for the monkeys. I thought, how could this be? What, what universe, parallel universe, did this occur in? And, oh, actually, this universe, it apparently occurred, and I'm yet to catch up with the film. I'm, I'm aching to. Both that and Yellow Submarine. And Yellow Submarine. And I, I don't think that, in a way, you could really do this kind of program um, without having nods to films like that, perhaps not those exact films, but I mean I, I think they're perfectly selected for, um, for this psychedelic program I think that Head and Yellow Submarine in particular are actually a really nice fit um, I mean, some of the other films in this program, I mean, Holy Mountain is probably worth a mention, the Jodorowsky. Worth a mention. <laughs> <laughs> and how. 
Yeah, look, I I, that, I saw that last at MIF several years ago, and it's such an astonishing film. There, there's imagery there that's quite unforgettable, some of it very deeply disturbing, and some that could never be shot again owing to its um, uh, the animals involved, uh, sort of in direct contravention of any present-day standards. So it's lots of reptiles suffer in the course of the film, if I remember, or at least are, are clothed strangely. I remember there being some very weird pageantry involving frogs and lizards. and well, it's, it, There is something very, uh, oh gosh, uh, of, of its time, but of this time as well with that film. And it has an ending um, which is extremely reflexive, very clever, and which uh, predates, um, let's say, Kiristami's Taste of Cherry, which has a, is famous for its ending too, which is remarkably similar to Holy Mountains without trying to give too much away. In a way, it's inconsequential, the ending to both films, but in many other ways it absolutely isn't. It's, um, they're both very considered films. And, it, look, it's Jodorowsky at his peak, the Jodorowsky who later didn't get to make Dune. I was just thinking, it's interesting having Holy Mountain playing again this year after, of course, last year, the success at Myth of Jodorowsky's Dune, uh, because I think that that's brought a degree of uh, intimacy or familiarity to a lot of people that perhaps weren't that familiar with him as a, as a person, you know, mm. who'd never seen him interviewed at length before. So I think it's really interesting to revisit something like Holy Mountain on the back of Jodorowsky's Dune. I have a confession to make, and I may have to leave the cave shortly after making it. I've never seen either El Topo or Holy Mountain. I've been hanging out to see them in a cinema, well, that's my excuse anyway, and sadly I actually can't make the screening of Holy Mountain here. So, Aster, if you're listening, uh, <laughs> do me a favour and reschedule them for a time soon. But, yeah, look... The, I've heard they're extraordinary, and I, I, you know, my understanding, and you probably back me up on this, Therese, is they should be seen on a big screen. I, I would definitely, if possible, see them on a big screen. I agree with yeah. that, and I, I don't think you need to apologise. I think it's exciting. You've got this waiting for you. It's wonderful. Yes. <laughs> then there's also Santa Sangre at some point. It'd be nice to see that turn up around these parts again. I haven't again. seen that in years, and I think that I saw that on a on a clapped-out old VHS tape. I'd love to see a nice print of that. Yeah, ditto um, me. That would be... Speaking of seeing nice prints of things that were once clapped out, uh, Salome mm. is playing in, in this psychedelic program and, yeah. uh, with uh, Pierre Clementi's Vigia de Censure, I think, from 1967. These, I mean, for me, this is what I imagine. When I think of the word psychedelic, these are the kind of films that I imagine, which is lots of sort of technicolour swirls and lots of people shouting... Oh, the just shouting. shouting. Oh. Just big men shouting, bottoms getting smacked, and lots of sort of lava lamp aesthetics. <laughs> yeah, Salome had this sort of pink narcissus meets uh, hard drugs thing going on. <laughs> it was very uh, visually captivating in a, a tiny attention span sort of way. The camera just was just uh, utterly hyperactive. and But all this beautiful imagery, uh, a lot of black light, uh, trickery, all these neon swirly... Uh, psychedelic um, colours and bedazzlement on these godlike figures and the soundtrack though was so overbearing to the point of uh, being almost unbearable I found so it, um, uh, I, I couldn't exactly recommend that experience to anybody else but it was something to behold. Yeah I feel the same, I, it was really hard work uh, really really hard work but at the same time, it was kind of meant to be. Um, this is really, I think, the, 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 I don't know if there's such a thing as classic psychedelia, but that's what Salome really felt like to me. Like, this is what, you, it's what it says on the, on the label. Like, it was psychedelic. That really, um, while I guess something like uh, Holy Mountain or Daisies, I think, were in a way ahead of their time, I think uh, Salome is very much of its time. 
Um, I pro- I'm going to leap over here and just talk a little bit about La Prisonnaire. Is that okay? Um, this one's worth a mention. Just it's a uh, Henry uh, Henry George Clouseau. Now he did Wages of Fear in 1953. Um, in 1964, he attempted and failed to make a film called Inferno with Romy Schneider, um, and he did a lot of technical tests that from that that were incredible, like really experimental, interesting stuff with colour. The test remained; the film never got made. But a guy in 2009 called Serge Bromberg made a documentary out of that, so you can see these tests. And basically, a lot of the technology that Clouseau came up with for that ends up in um, in La Prisonnière, which is also called Women in Chains, 1968. This is a really it's just an amazing film. It's basically the story about a young woman who tries to come to grips with her predilection for S&M, um, which she discovers through her association with an art curator, Stan, who's played by the almost criminally attractive Laurent Terzieff, I think his name is. Um, this is basically like a kind of pop art Fifty Shades of Grey for grown-ups, I guess, is starting to get in the right area. But I don't think that really does it credit. I, I flag this because I, I think it's an amazing film. I think it's seriously one of the best films playing at MIFF. It'd also be a perfect double with um, Peter Strickland's Duke of Burgundy, which deals with similar ideas, I guess, in a very different direction. Um, which I love. I love too. I think that's another one of the big, big films at MIFF this year. Right. In, in saying that, I think we will cover that because I think it is getting a th- limited theatrical it release in the near future. So, yep. so you heard it here first. We will be coming back to that one. Can I flag my most joyous moment of the festival so far and I'm, I'm not sure if it play, it's part of psychedelic or it's in the sort of the backbeat or late night section but that is Human Highway, the director's cut this is a film from 1982 directed by Neil Young uh, under the pseudonym Bernard Shakey and surprisingly this film seemed to have fallen through the cracks, it didn't do well critically when it was released, it's been one of those collectible rarities and now it's finally hitting our screens and it is a strange cat of a film, it is a film that in some ways looks back to the 70s new wave psychedelia movement and also looks forward to the 80s kitsch aesthetic the mtv music video aesthetic and look i know this is lazy film criticism 90 percent of the time when you say this has a very david lynchian feel about it i think i can get away with saying that for this film because it stars among others dennis hopper uh dean stockwell russ tamblin who was the psychiatrist in twin peaks and the other two were both in lynch's blue velvet and stylistically the kind of comic energy of this film feels like the exaggerated soap opera kitschness of twin peaks and very much the the short-lived series that lynch did afterwards on the air i think and i should mention it also stars devo but i thought this film was a joy oh, i love it i think it's um it's a wild wild ride you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r in melbourne australia one of my very favourite documentaries is playing at MIFF this year, and I'm very excited about it, and I would like to share that, that excitement with you, my colleagues. Grey Gardens, 1975, American documentary by Albert, Albert and David Maisels. Maisels? Maisels. Maisels. It never, never feels right saying that. I don't know, Maisels. Maisels. <laughs> you have to say it like that. Maisels. The Maisels. Now, Grey Gardens, if you're one of the... the fortunate people in the world who has the joy of discovering this film from scratch it depicts the everyday life of two uh two women they're kind of rich women but um named edith they're both named edith beale and they live in a house called great gardens in the hamptons in new york in the united states now there's edith ewing bouvier beale known as big edie and her daughter edith bouvier beale 
known as Little Edie. Right, you got it? It gets confusing. Now, they were both, um, I think, the big kind of link that people have to the to um, the Edies is, of course, that they were related to... They were uh, aunt and first cousin of uh, Jackie Onassis. And there's footage at the start of the film of, of Jackie O cleaning up their house. Basically, it's kind of a squat. I mean, they live in, in pretty dire squalor. It's Havisham territory. It pretty, yeah, it's pretty serious stuff. Only with more pussycats. Lots and lots of cats. <laughs> it's an amazing film. It's an amazing, amazing film. They're very much isolated from the from the world, and the two Edies sort of live together. I'm partial, you know, I know that you, should, you can never choose between your Edies, but I've always been partial to little Edie because she's staunch. She talks a lot about the word staunch, and I like little Edie for that. Have you guys seen Grey Gardens? I, I have a, uh, a friend who put me on to uh, Grey Gardens, um, hello Rowan if you're listening, who does the best impression of Little Edie and that my favourite moment of the film where she comes down and she's talking about what they're wearing and Mother and I had such an argument and she's talking about the, the proper ways to wear a kimono. It's, it's, it's an incredible moment. In <laughs> the what is, fashion in this film is off the chain. And it's, it's one of these documentaries that, it, that strikes that balance between almost mocking at subjects but having an absolute love for them as well. And I think that's such a delicate balance and one of the reasons why this documentary is obviously playing again at, at MIF. Oh, look, it's absolutely compelling. Uh, they are such an extraordinary pair, and you sense that they are inseparable, uh, and that's not entirely a healthy thing. They're, they're in a terrible rut. Uh, it's, it's very evident as soon as you see this house of theirs um, and all of the cats. Uh, they might be the archetypal crazy cat ladies. They might be the, the folk who spawned countless memes, uh, I think, uh, look, I, I don't entirely know what fate had in store ultimately for these two ladies, but it is uh, a beautiful documentary. And there was a wonderful uh, uh, fictionalised version of this uh, only a few years ago with uh, Jessica Lang and Drew Barrymore as the Edies, which is actually really wonderful too and could easily have played this uh, whole story of their tonally quite uh, disrespectfully and didn't. Um, the two back-to-back would be absolutely fascinating. That's a lost opportunity, Miff, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for playing Grey Gardens. Yeah, the absolutely. <laughs> hey, can I mention another documentary while we're on the on the form? Um, it's a documentary I, I saw earlier today. It's an Australian film called Gaby Baby from director Maya Newell. And this is about uh, children of same-sex couples. And obviously... Um, this is a pretty pressing issue right now. And I was really won over by this documentary. It, fo- it follows four same-sex couples, each with sort of one or two children, and, and from different, very much different class, religious, um, even cultural backgrounds. And the thing I love most about this documentary is it's not really about the topic at all. It is really just about showing you these four families without saying, this is about the political issue, this is what we want. You know, it's really, I think... Um, uh, it's about normalising these families and seeing them just as families. I mean, and and on that level alone, this is a really endearing documentary. The observational style, which again I appreciated, particularly given it was dealing with children. And I heard the director um, spoke actually with Thomas in a, in a Q&A afterwards, and you really got the sense that she'd done this in participation with uh, the subject, so they had artistic control in terms of whether they were showing too much, whether they felt comfortable revealing those aspects of themselves. And it didn't feel like a documentary that had been censored as a result of that. So this is a really endearing documentary. It's got one more screening Wednesday morning at 11am with hopefully uh, a theatrical release to follow at some stage in the future. I find it fascinating that the documentaries that we've all been drawn to so far are about families um, of degrees of functionality or or the families that appear to be dysfunctional 
um, or outside the norm that actually aren't. And that idea of um, of just sort of breaking down, you know, looking in. I guess that's a, that's a really interesting approach for a documentary to take this idea of looking into that intimate domestic space. Um, one of the documentaries that's really blown me away at MIFF this year is uh, Crystal Marcel's The Wolf Pack. Now, the poster of this film and my first vague glance at the synopsis led me to think that it was about a family into a kind of twisted cosplay. Basically, um, the, the poster is very much Tarantino-inflected uh, um, and the film opens with you know the, the six brothers basically reenacting a scene from Reservoir Dogs, I think, from memory. Um, but there's so much more going on here. It's basically a film about a, um, a family in New York focusing on the six brothers who basically, um, if ever, never, if ever, were allowed to leave the apartment. Um, so they basically get their understanding of, of culture and the way that they the, the world works and their language even. They get it through movies. They just watch movies. They don't go out. They stay at home. They watch movies. So on one hand, this story of the Angelo brothers is a kind of pop ethnography of what happens when we're exposed to the world only through a certain kind of representational apparatus. But there's a lot more going on at stake here, and I think that where this film for me was its most interesting was when it was looking at the grey areas, which in this film are really, really, really hazy, around questions of abuse. It never quite articulates this word, but these children, um, you know, the, the father of this family wouldn't let them out, or they were told that that was something that they couldn't do. And when they realised that they could go the whole dynamic of the household changed um, and, the, and the, this film documents that dynamic and documents what happens, you know, goes to Coney Island with these, with these boys who have never been to the beach before. Um, it's a remarkable documentary. I think that in a way, I mean, I love the film stuff in it and that's what drew, drew me to this, this idea of, of these young people growing up only knowing about the world through film. Um, but I think in a way that's almost a distraction from what this film is really doing and from what it's really about. It's a really remarkable experience, The Wolfpack. Wow, yeah, that's definitely on my to see list. Yeah, I hadn't even um, flagged that myself at all as one to catch. Uh, I, I barely dipped into the documentaries at all this year. In fact, when I say barely, I think I mean actually haven't. Um, <laughs> so over to you guys. Okay, well, I've got, I actually have another one, and it's I'm not sure I can segue nicely from family. The, it's, there's it's a, a family. It's a sort of family in in the other sense of the word. This is a documentary. Uh, it's called Drunk, Stoned, Brilliant, Dead. The story of the National Lampoon. And I have to say, I knew very little about the origins of National Lampoons. For me, it begins uh, with Animal House and the Griswolds, uh, but it had a massive history as a publication that sprung forth from the Harvard Lampoon. This documentary goes into what was one of the great satirical publications that came out of the 60s and grew to what we now consider the kind of the, the film culture. But the focus is on these writers and how this public publication challenged certain stereotypes about the body and, and race politics and so on, pushing a lot of boundaries in this very tumultuous period of the 60s and 70s. And then for film lovers, when we have the arrival of folks like Jim Belushi in the late 70s, I think the, when they start to come into it, it becomes really fascinating because you get all this archival footage of the Second City troupe with Jim Belushi, uh, Chevy Chase, Howard Ramis, Bill Murray, Brian Doyle Murray, and then you, you start to see the formation of what would be, I guess, what is now the kind of the, the bedrock of American comedy, that which would define American comedy for probably the next 20 years, really. And then the, the fall of the publication as these actors become so popular... 
and along comes Lorne Michaels and steals the actors and their writers and how a publication then tries to hold itself together while the, the creative figures and the people who create it are on to coke and various other substances there. And, yeah, this film covers so much territory and stuff I hadn't heard of. I think this is a really, really impressive documentary. It's interesting to me because that stuff is so much a part of my late-night TV memory. Um, it never occurred to me before you started talking about this that it even had history. I think that it was just in that kind of almost like an adolescent pop culture va- vacuum in my in my mind. Um, I think unpacking the phenomena and the history around that sounds actually really fascinating. And it worked on me to such a point that within moments of finishing the documentary, I had uh, National Lampoon's Vacation 1983, the Chevy Chase, the original Griswold's trip to Wally World, and I've been singing Holiday Road ever since. (laughs) Would you like to give us a few faster? (laughs) I found out long ago. No. (laughs) Come on, just a chorus. (laughs) That's a lovely segue into music documentaries, though. So I thank you for that. Um, I, I think, I mean, all film, obviously, at a film festival like MIF, when there's such a huge offering of wonderful film on offer, there's a strong degree of subjectivity about what you're going to watch. But I think music documentaries, perhaps more than anything else, you just don't tend to see a music doco if you're not really into the band. And I'm lucky this year because there's a lot of stuff that I'm really into. And there's two films that I really want to mention. One is Theory of Obscurity about the American band The Residents. Now, they're famous for their anonymity, if that makes sense. The image that we all have, we don't know who they are. Um, the image that we know of the residents is that they have these giant eyeball head mask things and tuxedos. Um, and in this documentary, the costumes are kind of you know, talked about as being iconic. We see them being entered into a major art museum and curators talking about them and things like that. The big question is, do we get to find out who the residents are? Well, you know, no spoilers. The answer's kind of yes or no. Uh, I'm not going to give that away. <laughs> the history of this band is remarkable. They've been around since 1969. That's 46 years. I did the math. I sat there and counted on my well fingers. That's, that's, not, that's not a short time to be around. Um, they were a huge part of inventing the music video, and we get a lot of that background here. Really experimental, really avant-garde. Uh, really kind of DIY aesthetic. You know, they really they really did it their way. Um, the people that are interviewed in this are remarkable. So people like Primus's Les Claypool, uh, Penn Jillette, uh, Mickey Melchiodono, uh, F- G- uh, Dean Ween, I think he's Dean Ween from Ween. Mm. Um, Matt Gronig, massive, massive, massive uh, The Residence fans, which makes sense when you start sort of getting into the humour of The Residence. You can start to see how that influenced The Simpsons, perhaps. And uh, Devo's Jerry Cassell, Devo, of course, we just heard. Another wonderful documentary playing on the 7th. So Theory of Obscurity is playing again on the, f- uh, the 4th tomorrow. Salad Days is playing tomorrow, which is about the Washington, D.C. punk scene from 1980 to 1990. Um, This focuses on the explosion of underground activity in D.C. Why then and why there is basically the big question. Um, A lot of attention on bands like Teen Idols, Band Brains, Minor Threat, Dag Nasty and Government Issue. Um, There are a lot of big names in this doco, people like Dave Grohl, Thurston Moore, Henry Rollins, and, of course, Fagazi. I also really like that uh, some of the shorter interviews are with women, and it doesn't really get into the gender stuff, but it does touch on it. And that, to me, is really interesting. It's like how to... This is a kind of very masculine scene um, in DC so where do women fit in and there's some short interviews with people like Monica Richards who's a remarkable woman she's from a band called Strange Boutique went on to be in a really foundational uh, dark wave band called Faith in the Muse she's amazing this is a great doco if you're into this stuff three triple ah. You're 
listening to Triple R. This is Plato's Cave. We're talking myth films from the Melbourne International Film Festival. And I believe, Cerise, you've got a film called The Postman's White Nights. Picking up from the documentaries we've just been uh, covering, this is sort of a docu-fiction. It's, look, I, I, I'm fascinated by the director, Andrei Konchalovsky. He's sort of Russian film royalty. His brother is Nikita Mikhalkov, uh, a famous director in his own right, Burnt by the Sun, an Academy Award winner, and an actor in his younger days, and I think older as well. And Konchalovsky himself has just the most extraordinary career. He co-wrote Andrei Rublev, one of the canonical Russian films, uh, director Andrei Tarkovsky, you may have heard of him. But but then later in Hollywood, and I'm not making this up, directed Tango and Cash. And <laughs> there's something magnificently <laughs> in And Runaway Train starring John Voight. Wow. So it's, his career, I mean, is... I think is, I actually just did a double take. <laughs> yeah, something short-circuited. Uh, and, and then this film, something else altogether. It's, uh, it's very much uh, a fictional film, but it in, entirely employs the tiny populace of a tiny North Russian middle-of-nowhere village uh, playing, I guess, versions of themselves. And uh, yes, as you might gather from the title, the, the lead character is a postman. He just goes about his lonely daily life and spectacular scenery, but uh, in one of those villages that you just know is representative of a, a way of life that is just not long for this world. There's just no way that these people... I mean, they've already more or less been abandoned by the 21st century, yet they still just go through uh, routines day by day. Just It's a fairly hard scrabble life. It's not glamorous, even if the postman has got a new set of teeth. It's a really kooky film full of extremely odd compositions uh, of interiors. Uh, all of these, I think it's meant to make these places, uh, which are largely quite jerry-built, seem all the more claustrophobic. But the, the compositions are striking, especially in stark contrast to these spectacular open outdoorsy uh, lakes and forested areas it's just a really kooky warm film in which i sense that everyone involved actually found some purpose in life that might largely be lacking from it the rest of the time such is the lot in life of these uh god forsaken people uh, just a really fascinating film and um I, i'm determined i'd actually go through konsolovsky's entire back catalogue and see how many other tangos and caches there are in there for every uh postman's white nights just um and there's only one more screening of that film at Mifflet's tomorrow, so I thought I really wanted to bring that to people's attention. And another film, um, this still has two screenings to come at Mif that I caught uh, elsewhere a while back, I thought very interesting, has documentary tendencies as well, but is really a horror film. Or it's both, it's some weird hybrid. It's The Nightmare from Rodney Asher of Room 237 fame that uh, conspiracy theorists, uh, wet dream shining crossover... Uh, Kubrick love fest thing. This film's even odder than that uh, and rather more disturbing. This is one to take home with you, to bed with you and to keep you up all night for it is all about one of the rather more alarming things that human beings can be subjected to if they are unlucky and that is the peculiar phenomenon known as sleep paralysis uh, as celebrated in paintings in uh, oh, what was there was one particular painter who especially loved uh, painting weird impish characters at the feet of people's beds tormenting them as they lay there paralysed uh, this film is full of people's accounts of such experiences which 
the director has taken it, uh, taken the courtesy of visualising for us, lest we have trouble imagining the absolute horror of what is being described. And not just visualising, but actually in one particularly striking sequence, um, cranking up the soundtrack so that you also understand that there can be an oral component to the terror that these people who are unable to move upon waking up uh, that they experience. Uh, This is a really fascinating film, and it gave me the heebie-jeebies like nothing I have seen in a long time. Uh, I saw it at a late-night session at a film festival abroad and went back to my room later on thinking it didn't get to me. What a funny film. (laughs) And then I lay there... And I lay there and I lay there some more and I just wanted not to turn the lights off. And I was deeply, deeply unnerved. And if that sounds like a lot of fun to the likes of you out there, then I highly recommend The Nightmare. Well, if that does sound like fun to you, there's lots of other things on offer in the horror department. There's a wonderful night shift um, program this year, some really strong, strong films. I think the first horror that we're going to mention, we'll probably talk a bit more about these next week, but I think... um, Adam Wingard's The Guest is probably worth worth a shout-out at this stage. Um, Wingard had a film playing last year that was hugely popular. Um, it was one of the big the big horror films last year, I think, at MIF that everybody got excited about was Your Next, um, which is great. He actually made an earlier film in 2010, I think, called A Horrible Way to Die, which, for my money, is still, still his best film. I think it's better than The Guest and better than um, Your Next. But The Guest is really solid. It's just a really fun... Film. It doesn't have the brutality of a horrible way to die. Um, a lot of people have compared it to horror subgenres like The Stepfather, that kind of, um, like it's not a supernatural film, the kind of stalker kind of horror film. But to me it almost felt a bit like a kind of Van Damme, like a 90s Van Damme film. There's this whole military subplot that isn't really ever really addressed or resolved. Um, this is a lot of fun. It doesn't really make any sense. It's got some amazingly strong performances. You kind of know, if you know Wingard, you know what's on offer, I think. Um, and you very you get it big time. There's some beautiful colour work, some beautiful cinematography in the climactic scene of this film. The performances are brilliant. Dan Stevens is the villain is great. Uh, Mike Munro from It Follows is just wonderful in this film. I think she carries it as much as Dan Stevens does. But I've got to give a shout-out to the soundtrack. This is just the stuff that I grew on, up on as a kind of mopey teenage goth. It's all Clan of Zymox and Sisters of Mercy and Front 242. It's all wonderful. What did you think? I love the soundtrack. Soundtrack's great. <laughs> I love the penultimate scene in the, uh, the school hall. It's very Mario Bava. And beyond that, I struggle to find anything really... I think he's a stylist, and the moments that work are the moments that play on the style. He's not someone who seems at all interested in in narrative. Like, the whole FBI subplot felt like someone was trying to wedge in... I think you spot on a a, a 90s Van Damme action film into a 90s sex thriller rom. I mean, this film initially feels like that 90s film Fear with Mark Wahlberg and Reese Witherspoon without the wonderful roller coaster scene. You know, it has that feel, and and it... it seemed to be working initially when it was just working within that narrative terrain, and as soon as it tried to expand it, I felt the rails really came off and all I had left was the soundtrack. Uh, I've not seen any of the other horror films, I don't think, Alex, but you're oh, the one we'll, likeliest, we'll, aren't you? Yeah, you're the girl yeah. most we'll, likely we'll talk, here. We'll talk, and there's some great stuff coming up. I'll flag, I really want to see Deathgasm, really want to see The Invitation. Spring I've already seen, but we might hang off on that until next week. What about you guys? Anything non horror I know that there are other... I keep getting told that there are films that aren't horror films. I suppose I should listen about them sometimes. I could uh, <laughs> rave about a very sweet uh, animated fantasy film which has certain dark elements to it and certainly supernatural elements. I'm in, I'm in. And that is Tom Moore's Song of the Sea, absolutely exquisite. Uh, ah, the Irish. 
the yeah well uh, yes it's a, it concerns Celtic legend uh, a, a selkie um, I'm not sure if all, all selkies are necessarily girls who uh, though mute can turn into seals uh, but Sershi is one such selkie uh, she's uh, a young girl growing up I think uh, if memory serves correctly in a lighthouse I saw this quite some time ago as well uh, in a, a rather grim household where there's a, a manipulative grandmother, an absent mother, a resentful brother, and a very sad father. But there's a whole other world uh, beneath the ocean, beneath the earth, uh, a world of uh, supernatural creatures, uh, folkloric creatures of a very Celtic persuasion. And things ain't going so well there. There's a whole lot of sadness, and it's not being released into the world as properly as it ought. There's some, uh, gosh, very peculiar figure who reminded me a bit of um, this extraordinary creature in Spirited Away, something that this film has a certain uh, affinity with, you could say. Um, I forget what her, her name was, but this grandmotherly character, this huge thing who sometimes filled the frame and looked wizened and wise but distressed and... There's a character very much like that who holds the key to this uh, really transfixing narrative. It, it, it has that wonderful fairy taleness about it, but like a fairy tale, you don't know yet. And there aren't. Well, you know, last week we we got stuck into Beauty and the Beast. You know, this uh, terrible recent adaptation of an all too familiar fairy tale. For me, there's something incredibly. Uh, still wonderful and marvellous and takes me back to my childhood when I see a film which is fairy tale like but which I have no uh, expectations of the narrative it just unfolds as it will and it all makes its own perfect sense even though I've uh, never come across it before and Song of the Sea is such a film it's just a Blended. And it's screening again? Oh, uh, twice. Uh, Sunday, Sunday the 9th, Saturday the 15th. And if it doesn't go into release after that, I will be appalled. And we should give a shout-out to Thomas Caldwell for programming that. I think it's pa- part of the next-gen program. I believe so. Wonderful. I'm not sure how I can segue from that. So speaking of fairy tale, tell, <laughs> tell us about Pasolini. Pasolini. <laughs> <laughs> Song of the Sea to Salo. Hmm. It all ends uh, happily ever after. Exactly. Yeah, things worked out pretty well, yeah. I think, for Pasolini. Oh, right? Absolutely. Yeah, no spoilers. Fairy tales. Yeah. yeah. The, the film about um, the filmmaker Pier Paolo Pasolini in his final days, very tragic days, uh, just shortly after finishing work on on his infamous masterpiece, Salo, is the subject of director Abel Ferrara. Abel Ferrara, my man Abel. Bad Lieutenant Abel Ferrara. So if you, Abel Ferrara. You, yeah, if you've seen any of Abel Ferrara's work, I guess you can already have a, an understanding of the tonal qualities of this and why perhaps Pasolini's final days is such kind of ripe subject matter for this. And we have uh, Willem Dafoe who's playing Pasolini. This was one of the films I was looking forward to the most. It took me a while to work into the film. It's very short and it's not a typical biopic by any stretch because it really focuses on those last days. And he also takes the unusual step of inter- integrating what would have been Pasolini's his next film, as imagined by Ferrara, into the film itself. So it's a strange film within a film where the lines between biography, filmmaker, and what would have been his next project start to kind of blur and sort of crescendos with the moment of violence that ends his life. Um, look, I think this is a really impressive film, and it's one I haven't been able to get out of my head. It's, it's a Ferrara film, after all, since I, since I saw it. And I think, yeah, there's another screening coming up towards the end of the festival. I think it's on Saturday the 15th. I'm not sure it's going to get a theatrical release. It's not the kind of thing that screens you know, multiplex, uh, but yeah, well worth it. Yeah, Ferrara is not so much a 
a, a multiplex kind of guy, and I think that's why we love him. Indeed. Speaking of amazing directors, I want to give a very brief shout-out to the festival guest, Sebastian Silva, the Chilean director, who is here. Is he here now? I don't know. I don't maybe know. he's listening. That would be so exciting. He's amazing. Maybe he's, he's in the studio. Maybe, maybe we are all... Tonight we are all Sebastian Silva. He's, he's just one of my favourite directors at the moment. He made uh, an incredible film in 2009 called The Maid, which is playing in the Silver retrospective. Magic Magic, uh, without, doubt, one of, without doubt my favourite film of 2013. Just an incredible film with uh, Juno Temple, Julian Temple, we are talking about earlier. It's his daughter. Um, but Nasty Baby, his new film, the, um, that's already screened, that's screening on the 6th and the 8th, I believe, and I really want to give Nasty Baby a shout-out. It's a it's a wild ride. Um, I read an interview with Silver recently saying how much he hated quirk, and this film starts off like it's going to be a kind of American indie quirk fest, and then it's really not. And um, that's all you really need to know about Nasty Baby, please, if you like fluffy films that that aren't fluffy um <laughs> but does it literally feature a nasty baby a la larry cohen's it's well, alive it kind, of, it's it kind well of does in that uh, sebastian silver himself stars in this as is the chap from tv on the radio whose name i've gone blank on who's but there are a couple in this film who are helping uh, a female friend Kristen wig have a baby um and S- silver's character is a performance artist who plays the nasty baby and then things go bad they go <laughs> weird they get nasty I'll give one last shout-out to a film that has one more screening on Wednesday, and that's uh, George Avashvili's Corn Island, a Georgian-German-French-Czech-Kazakh film. Uh, there's a co-production for the ages. <laughs> uh, concerning matters in uh, Georgia um, and uh, arguably in Abkhazia as well, contested land as discussed in Tangerines a, a few weeks back on this here <laughs> show. It's a really stunning, slow Film all about the passage of time, about conflicts that um, you can be oblivious to for only so long. You can uh, be an elderly gent with a uh, a niece, perhaps, uh, tending an island in the middle of a river in the middle of contested land, growing corn, your staple for the winter, whilst other stuff goes on around you. Will you be absorbed into it? Will the elements take you first, or will humankind and all its idiocy be the end of you? Or will you just uh, endure nonetheless because you have for God knows how many years already? It's a really stunning film and the passage of time is very appreciable through it. It has that sort of that, that real documentary aspect. This is real corn growing, not in real time because that wouldn't make a very good film, but over the passage of, let's say, around a year or so. And I, I think it's just spectacularly good. I have one very quick shout out because we're almost out of time and that is the Gaspar Noe film with love which is screening and I'll be there along with Thomas Caldwell on Wednesday night. This is his exploration of sexuality in vivid 3D. We're out of time, guys. That's the first of our two MIF specials. We'll be back to talk more Melbourne International Film Festival next week. You've been listening to Plato's Cave with Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard, Alexandra Heller-Nicholas. A big thank you to Janelle O'Callaghan for saving our bacon once again on the panels. Good night. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.